Hello, welcome to episode number 220 of the Apologue Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by BetterHelp.com. Get affordable private online counseling anytime, anywhere. You can talk with a licensed professional therapist online right now. And you can get a seven-day free trial by going to BetterHelp.com slash and enter the code word Apologue when you sign up for that free one week. I'd like to thank everybody for shopping on Amazon and supporting the show on Amazon and helping me out with my little project called the podcast. You too can support the show by going to appalog.ca slash Amazon or appalog.ca slash US Amazon. You can do it the old-fashioned way by going to appalog.ca and click on those banners located on the right side. Locate your country, whether you're from Canada, the United States, or the UK, and bookmark those links. And every time you shop on Amazon, you can use those links to shop and support the show. It costs you no extra money. I'd like to thank everybody for supporting me on Patreon. YouTube can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash apologue. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash a-p-o-l-o-g-u-e. And you can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel at any time. Buy a t-shirt by going to apologue.ca slash shop. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Give it five stars, please. Like the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash apologuepod. And follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. Today on the show, I have a dear old friend, Mr. Adam Sewell, who I met in the Monster Voodoo Machine days in the sort of the mid or early to mid 90s. I worked with his band. He also had a few other bands that we're going to talk about. This is a nice, long, awesome episode. Adam says so many awesome, cool things. And uh, one of my favorite episodes, I would say. Here he is, Mr. Adam Sewell on the Apologue Podcast. Oh my God. You know what? I think the last time I spoke to you, I don't even remember, dude. It was like, is it 20 years ago? Is it 15 years ago? Well, I'm sure I've spoken to you since then. I don't know, man. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's Facebook has sort of kept everybody together in a way, you know, like it's a. Uh, yeah, day. you know, I, I, I think we're at that age, though, where you sort of you blink and five years goes by. That's true. That's totally true. Yeah, yeah. I. You know, I kind of like, there's certain things I kind of don't like about Facebook, but there's but the reasons like this that I can kind of s- sort of look into your life. You can look into our lives and say, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? How are you? Is everything okay? And, you know, so I, I always sort of see what you're doing. It's been, I don't know, I've been on Facebook for over 10 years now. You? Right, yeah. Um, I Probably about that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Did you get right on it? Like, or were you like a MySpace and then transfer over to... Uh, yeah, but it, you know, a lot of it had to do with work. Yeah, um, it, it wasn't something I was too personally um, enthralled by, but it was just you know all the bands that I was working with and everything. It was sort of mandatory mm-hmm. to get involved with all of that, um, and you know, it's it's uh, you know there was that sort of period from like 1999 through to 
you know, maybe five years ago where every time there's some new, you know, social media thing or some new app or some new technology, um, there's sort of a mad rush for, you know, bands and labels and everybody to try and be early adapters so that they don't miss whatever the next thing is going to be. And so I've had to kind of, you know, for good or bad, have to sort of, you know, jump in and take a look at these things. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's, it's. It feels like it's kind of leveled off a little bit when it comes to like you have Instagram, you have Twitter, Facebook, and the young kids use the Snapchat. Um, well, and, and and there's the the Ello graveyard that's out there. The what? Do you remember Ello from about two or three years ago? No, no, that that completely <laughs> bypassed right over. I remember IRC. Remember IRC with the cuckoo? It yeah. was like that. That was like the weird. You didn't have a user ID. You had a number. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's the music business for us, so it's all one big ISRC code. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So let's, I mean, let's go back because we do have like, we've we've sort of crossed paths with music and bands over the past 30, almost 30 years where we were on the same label for a little while with Epidemic Records. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, so you're, you're, you're a Toronto boy, right? Yeah, I grew up at Spadina and Bloor. yeah. Now, being Toronto bound, did did you ever have the now that you're old, you ever think, well, I want to move out of the city, or are you just tied down to the city? Um, you know, the thing is, my wife and I are planning to to move out of the city probably in the next three years or so. We we own a place up north um, near Wasega Beach, mm-hmm. and you know, the idea is to tear that place down and build a year round house and move up there eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, my mother makes fun of me. My brother makes fun of me for this because they both left the city. Um, but there's there's something, you know, about this city that I, I feel sort of eternally connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, weirdly so, because I don't really go out very much anymore. I certainly, um, you know, I don't experience the city um, or enjoy the city the way that I used to growing up but um you know this i just i very 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 i I feel very connected to toronto and it's it it's it's a difficult thing for me to think about leaving (laughs) my wife doesn't want to hear that i'm sure but it's the truth (laughs) yeah yeah so playing in bands from toronto is probably as easy or as hard or harder maybe than a suburb band because a suburb band obviously different type of uh different type of person out in the suburbs well you know i, I think that the hardest thing or the, the thing i noticed that was the biggest difference about you know being a musician um and being right downtown in toronto was look we didn't have basements you know to to jam in um we didn't have garages you know that you, you could jam in. we didn't have you know block parties or um you know, a lot of the, the, the VFW halls or, or little community centers and things that, you know, bands can play in. Um, and that also charged with, you know, the fact that I didn't really grow up with a lot of friends. You know, I didn't, I wasn't very close to, to people growing up. Um, I, I knew a small handful of people and, you know, I, the, the people that I first started playing music with and maybe, you know, 1983 are the same people I play music with today. 
it's 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 the exact same guys you know the, the people who played with with me on the defcon sound system record are the same guys i've been playing with since 1983 and you know it's you know whenever i did meet people who um were in bands and everything their bands were always practiced outside of the city you know or really from you know don mills or from mississauga or from you know oakville or pickering or places like that mm -hmm. that very few of them were from downtown um you know so i i had to learn to keep things short and to the point you know when you're you're paying 10 bucks an hour at jaw studios or exit studios or something you know in the 80s mm -hmm. you know just to, to to write some songs or rehearse I never even thought of that, right? Because all the people in the suburbs have a basement or a garage. Or, but they're know. also surrounded by other kids their own age. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like my, sure. my, high, my high school, on a good day, my high school had 60 kids in it. Wow. You know, um, so for me, you know, this notion of like meeting people who went to high schools with hundreds and hundreds of kids, that was a real, that's a foreign concept to me. That was a really bizarre thing. Um, you know, I went to school like, you know, John Cummins from Doughboys yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and Bionic and Kevin Hearn, who's in the Bare Naked Ladies and, um, you know, James B, who's, you know, from the Look People and Jazz FM and everything. So I, I went to school with, with, you know, people who were, well, I was, I was in an art school. And so there were a lot of, you know, very successful artists and musicians there, but you know, the people that they even had to play with or rehearse with, I, I remember, you know, it was always, again, it was people who were outside of the downtown core for the most part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you'd have to like, so, so if you live in Toronto too, you wouldn't really be the first one to buy the car because that's a suburb thing. That's a country thing. Yeah. yeah. Didn't I, look, I had, you know, I had a bicycle that I was quite happy with until I was in my mid twenties. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the convenience of Toronto, man. Like, yeah, because I lived down there for maybe three or four years, and I did. I I got really into the fact I could ride a skateboard to my job, and that was pretty cool. And or a bicycle, or I could go see a show and then take a cab home. And you know, because I grew up in the country, so for me to 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 live that, I made full advantage. I took full advantage of it because it was something that it was like. I, I really uh, never had as a, as a kid. So it was like, it was like the opposite of you almost, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Right. You know, no, it's, it, you know, look, I, I love the fact that, you know, um, you know, on an average summer day as a kid, you know, I was putting 20 to 50 kilometers, you know, a day mm -hmm. on my bike, mm -hmm. you know, zipping around all over the place, but you loved it. I mean, you could do it and it was great. And, um, I, I'm terrified to ride a bike in the city now, though. Yeah. I mean, the congestion in the city is out of hand. And the drivers are terrible. Yeah. Well, there was, you know? there was the big fight to get bike lanes, and then I don't know where that fight ended or started or if it's even finished or who won it, but um, I still don't yeah. see a big big change in Toronto for that. To You know, you if you go to Europe, there's bike roads. Yeah. Completely separate from cars. You can just get on a thing and ride. You know, the... the 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 problem is that all of these things it's just too little too late mm. i mean these are things that they should have done in the 70s um and they they just refused to do it and so toronto right now is um collapsing under its own weight and its own expansion um and you have all these people who are supposed to be progressive thinkers who um you know they they believe they're what they call pro density 
progressives mm -hmm. and they just believe that everybody should live in a little 600 square foot box you know in, in a block tower and uh, there should be nothing but bike lanes and no cars downtown and yeah. it, it's just nonsense yeah you know? yeah well everybody's gotta get along i i do remember toronto as sort of like as a 16 year old kid going down and it's not the toronto obviously it's around today there was sure. nobody really lived in toronto that i knew you know what i mean like it was like Buffalo. When you went to Buffalo, it's like nobody lives downtown. But I'm sure Buffalo has been completely, <laughs> you know, gentrified now and cleaned up right. and, and, and just have an influx of whatever that whole area in Toronto that's like all condos now. That has got to yeah. be, what, half a million people? Maybe? Maybe more? Maybe? I, you know, I, I read something um, about a year or two ago where they were anticipating uh, – that in the downtown core of Toronto was going to be growing at an annual rate of about 70,000 people. And then an additional 500,000 people on top of that into the GTA. Mm. And that was the, the, the forecast into, I think 2025. Now, I mean, those, I, I'm not sure how accurate those numbers are or anything, mm -hmm. but it's insane. Um, I mean, when I was a kid on a Sunday and this in Toronto used to be, you know, such a Puritan city. It was, it was the no fun city. And so everything was closed on Sundays, but I can remember crystal clear, like it was yesterday, being six years old, seven years old, and riding my bike down the middle of King Street and Queen Street on a Sunday, and there's no traffic anywhere. You could have fired a cannon <laughs> down the street and not hit anything. Wow. And we, you know, we would just be zooming, zigzagging all over the Young Street, Queen Street, and um, you know, now they're, you know, Toronto's it's twenty four seven. Mm -hmm. the, Toronto is what New York wants you to believe that it is. You yeah. know, you go to Manhattan. You go to Manhattan now. Manhattan's just you know, it's it's a, a pharmacy. It's a GNC. It's a Whole Foods, a Starbucks, and you know, and it's just it's it's not the twenty four seven great nightlife that it, it once was. Um, I guess you had, suppose you have to go into Brooklyn and places like that to experience it. But Toronto really is now. I mean, Toronto is. Is, Toronto is is the that early '90s nightlife that I remember in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So you said you went to an art school as as a kid. Uh, was this high school or public school? Must have been was it high school. Well, it was. I the the first one that I went to was in grade eight. Um, would have been 1983. It was an alternative school called Quest. Um, and from there, I went on to Inglenook the next year which is uh, sort of one of the most famous uh, alternative art schools in Toronto. Uh, and that was 84. Um, so that was, that was high school. I got thrown out of Jesse Ketchum after grade seven. <laughs> um, and that they, they told me I shouldn't be in a public school system. I needed to go into a more focused alternative school. Wow. Yeah. I, I got thrown out for, for, fighting and drinking and stuff at school so it was really that's fair enough yeah <laughs> yeah, <fair> enough. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure well I mean, it's do you have kids right you have kids just one just yeah. one kid so yeah. so when you when you as a parent now you look at children i you know my children i have two and um it's, how old are they they're 15 and 12 oh good ages yeah my son's gonna be driving in like a month <laughs> a car <laughs> Like this, the thing that could, you know what I mean, run people over. Oh, yeah. It's oh, frightening yeah. as hell. How old is yours? Uh, mine's 24. Wow. Oh, man. So you started uh, You started early. 
Well, I, I you know, my, my son was born uh, two days before the, the, the Suffer System album came out. Oh, wow. So I was in the middle of tour um, <laughs> right when he was born. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is, I mean, he is now the age I was uh, when I was on that tour. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that is neat. And you look, you look at your kids and go, you know, maybe you should be a lawyer. That's what I do, my son. You should just be a lawyer, or a doctor, or something. <laughs> you know, music is not the, you know, is not the uh, profession for the weak-hearted. <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, I, my, you know, I, I, I tried to um, see if that was the type of thing my son was interested in, but he ended up going to Rosedale School of the Arts. Yes, uh, he's an artist. I, he's, I've he seen is. the murals and things he does. It's, it's he is very talented. He is. He was born with every ounce of natural talent that I was not born with. <laughs> well, you, um, you did good then. <laughs> yeah, he he is. He never fails to make me proud, and the the work that he does is incredible. Um, and he's he's actually just opened uh, an art gallery. About you remember where tattoo rock bar is on queen street there yeah, yeah. just uh, and there's orange studios on top of that okay yeah he, he's got a recording studio and an art gallery up on the just oh. above orange oh he's a double um, threat he is he's yeah he's he's definitely a double threat there well he's, he does the music and the arts and then he also does modeling as well jesus uh, christ you, you've made a you made a unicorn <laughs> <laughs> I, I got i got very lucky with him yeah, um, you know, amazing. We, That's why you only have one. He's like, why, why, why wreck a good thing here? <laughs> well, you know, uh, Tracy, my wife and I, we had both decided we, we just wanted one. Yeah, you know, we wanted one boy, um, and we'd be real happy with that. And you know, we we got lucky on the first try, I suppose. Yeah, yeah well, so that was it. That was fine. Yeah, because I I'm in a, I have two brothers, and uh, I, I having three kids is never something in my was ever on my. Uh, agenda two is good you know with me because they can keep each other company they kind of still get along you know it's a nice age i i just you know it was i i I had a brother growing up but the two of us you know and we're only two years apart we never really wanted anything to do with each other really you know it was it was very it was very weird he was all sports all the time and i was all everything but sports Mm. and the two of us just we're, we've been closer in the past 10 years mm. than we ever were growing up. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that that experience soured me on wanting to have a second child, but you know, I just kind of felt like we got exactly what we had, had kind of wanted. Um, and uh, I, I think we just kind of felt like, you know, let's just put all of our energy and focus and attention into, 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 into the one, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's a very it's a very cool concept that you have someone that's your your gene pool. It means something you made, and something that, you know <laughs> what I mean. You made that, you know, and it's and it's a if you just take it down to the bare necessities of like that thing, you know what I mean. It grew and it and you've you've nurtured this little person and now into a man. This person's a man, yeah, you know, and. It must be super, like that. This this person turned into a person that you can respect, and that's only what you can just hope for as a father. You know, it's like you just want to respect the fact of what your children's do. I, you know, I, 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 I'm I'm thrilled with 
his work ethic and, and, and I'm thrilled with his talents. Um, and you know, I know he's a good person and especially with the way that he treats other people. Um, and that I'm, I'm thrilled about that. That to me is that's, you know, that's success. You know, that makes me feel good about things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there's, you know, there's another part to it too, which is, you know, I think, I, um, when he was born, I kind of, I realized very quickly that like my life was over, you know, and yeah. it was okay. Now this is all about him. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I you know, it's, it's not easy when you're a kid. Cause like, you know, look, I was his age when he was born. I was, I was a kid. Yeah. And, um, you know, so there's, there's a, that inter- eternal internal fight you have where you're, you know, you're supposed to be a little young and selfish and, you know, you're trying to, I don't know whether it's about making a name for yourself or just establish yourself or just get your life on track or whatever it is you're supposed to do. And, and that's, you know, that's a thing where you need to focus on you, but, you know, so I'm trying to balance that against understanding and knowing that, you know, look, it, it, this is really supposed to be about him in the long run mm-hmm. and me looking after him. And that's, that's a difficult thing when you're young. This is a, yeah, I mean, it's a common conversation on this show with fathers who, who, were, who were musicians who have that, that tear between being selfless and selfish because being a musician is, is the epitome of being super selfish because nobody feels the, the torment and the pain. And, and then, then when you have children, then you try to, you have to then completely be, you know, you have to be selfless. And well, yeah, you know, there, look, there's there's a weirdness to it, which is, um, it, which is exactly that. But at the same time, you know, you know, everything that my son enjoyed, whether it was you know watching Barney endlessly when he was was young, because he's that of that that generation, um, or taking him out to, you know. He, I mean, he was on tour with me when he was very young. So, you know, he was on tour with Marilyn Manson. He was on tour with Ozzy. He was on tour with Soulfly, you know. Yeah. Um, he was out, you know, with Slipknot. And he loved these bands. Mm-hmm. You know, like he, to him, he he just loved it. And you could see how he could feel the music and could really enjoy it. And, you know, and, and when you understand that young kid, I mean, everybody, you know, the world without art is a terrible place. It's, it's an awful place. Um, so, you know, taking some time for yourself to generate art that hopefully somebody likes, you know, um, you, you have to hope that it's a giving experience and not such an entirely selfish thing. Um, and there's been times, you know, where like, you know, when my son was very young, where I would see him bopping around to something I was working on. And that that was thrilling yeah. for me. That that was that was a thrilling experience to see that. So it it made me feel okay. Like, look, yeah, I had to spend twenty hours by myself working on this, or locked away in a, a room working on it. But but to see him, you know, bouncing around in his car seat while we're driving, and mm-hmm. he's bang, you know banging his head in the back seat. That's it. It kind of makes it worth it, I suppose. Yeah, totally, totally. So. Monster Voodoo Machine. When did that? That was early '90s, or was that? Yeah. Um, 
Well, it, you know, I mean, it was kind of a weird thing because it was um, there was a band that uh, Mark uh, Gibson and I had started, and I guess it was eighty nine. 88 or 89 probably called Toten Tants. And we played for about a year. We stopped for a little while. And then we just said, okay, let's, let's do this again, but let's really kind of push it and, um, and see what we can do with it. That might be a little bit more interesting. And um, so Terry had joined in the, one of the last lineups of Totem Tans. But we decided to bring in Drew to play drums. Um, and we just thought, well, let's give it a new name. And, 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 but we were really starting from the same place. It was really, it was the same band when we started. Um, and so we, we ended up just calling it Monster Voodoo Machine. So, uh, you know, that was 1990, I guess, mm-hmm. late 1990. Um, you know, just... Uh, yeah, it was it. Yeah, so 1990, and then uh, I guess it it petered out by 98. Yeah, yeah, I did a few shows with you guys. I think yeah. it was in their mid 90s for sure, because I was on tour with us in a few a lot around that time, and I remember flying home to do like three shows with you guys. Then I had to fly back to Vancouver. Well, I think I think if if I remember correctly, we flew you into Chicago. No, I think you flew me into Montreal or Toronto. Yeah, because we did a Montreal, Ottawa. We weren't in the States. I don't think so. If we are, I don't remember that part. But yeah, there was a weird, weird, like, I was just off tour with us in a few. And then you're like, hey, we're doing these shows. And it was Montreal, Ottawa, I think Toronto. Okay. And I sort of, yeah. I have have this vivid memory of you at a show that we played in Chicago. I think because I I don't know if you you were on just on tour and just happened to be there. That might have been when I was on tour. I think I was on tour with Voivod. And, oh, okay. And we were at the one of the we uh, were you at the fireside? It was the other way one of those things were at the fireside bowl, or we were there, or you were there, and then we sort of we were both in the same town at one point. I th- it's, see the, the show that I remember you being at was at the Metro at Chicago in Chicago. We were there with Marilyn Manson, and it was the night of the big riot. Oh, okay. And and I remember seeing you there, but that was. Um, I, I had to be escorted out real quick um, <laughs> out of that show. That, that was, I, I had cops, a line of cops escort me and Tra- Tracy with the baby. Um, they threw big coats over top of us wow. and, and took us out the back. And then there was a cab that was waiting for us. And I literally ran off stage, grabbed Tracy and stuff and then right into this cabin and, and out of there, there was fires being burned in, in the venue and people were throwing bottles everywhere. And they, they thought for sure. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) I, I did some, I did a few shows there with, uh, I was there with some 41 and we had to make up a show, a warp tour show in Manhattan, like the next day, kind of, or the day after, oh, okay. two days. We had to be Detroit. No, it's after. Yeah, but I went from Chicago, Detroit to Men to like I think it was Ellis Island, wherever the warp tour was. And then like the next day, like two days later, I had this crazy epic drive. And at the Metro, they had like just Red Bull sitting like in the in the fridge. And I just pulled everyone into my backpack, and I'm like, "We're going. We're doing the drive. We're gonna drive for like two straight days." And it was a brutal, brutal couple of days, but. uh 
yeah 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 the metro i do i do remember that i think i remember that but it's like god damn there was so much going on in my life too at that point because i would have been there most likely with snfu if it was like 96 95 around that time well it it, 95 it would have been yeah i think but it was it was kind of crazy though i mean i you know it was like we i know you and 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 me and you know a bunch of other people we were kind of like always on the road at that time and never i never like honestly i i I really have very little recollection of the actual cities that we played in Mm. you know it was just such a blur it just it just was like you know it was almost groundhog day in a different city yeah yeah and i did a lot of did a lot of van tours and i would wake up in a town and this only happened once really where i legitimately woke up and went I don't know where I am right now. And I drove there. <laughs> I ended up, I drove there the night before. I'm like, I have no, I, and I was like, right. I finally had to realize it was in Kansas or something, Kansas City. I was right. like, holy shit, I drove here and I didn't know where I was. And that was a very frightening thing for me because the same thing with the Groundhog Day, you're like every day, you're going somewhere, you're setting up, you're doing the same show, you're doing pretty much the same songs and then you're packing it up and you're putting it back in the van and off you go. And that's yeah. r- rinse and repeat for months. Well, we were, you know, we had this thing where we would do all of our drives at night. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we would finish the show, we would, you know, we'd hop in the, the RV and we'd drive all night to beat traffic. And then, you know, you wake up and you're sitting in a Walmart parking lot or a, a Denny's parking lot somewhere. Mm-hmm. No idea where you are. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, it's funny. I found all the, the faxes of, of, uh, our old itineraries and stuff and it's just page after page after page mm-hmm. and i don't re- i don't remember being in these cities i don't remember the venues i don't remember yeah much of it at all were you part of that because jill heath was your tour manager for a little while were you part of that where this guy with a gun came into the rv there's a story yeah. you were in that right were you well i i was that was jill and and uh your tour manager oh, i mean well, sorry jill, your sound jill, guy jill, well, Jill was actually managing us at that oh, time. Okay, right, right, right. Um, and Christian, who was our sound guy, yes, um, and and tour manager, um, the two of them had gone to Chicago to pick up the RV and drive it back to Toronto, and they just they just got outside of Chicago and uh, they stopped to get something to eat, and this crackhead jumped into the, the RV and tried to kill them, <laughs> and uh, and Jill tackled them. Like was no, 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 Christ, Christian. Oh, because the, there was a gun, right? There was a gun involved. Yeah, yeah, and it went yeah. off. Yeah, <laughs> it. Uh, um, and the the guy ended up going to prison on attempted murder charges, and he's still he's still in prison in Illinois. Wow, that's you know? insane. Yeah, you, you know, uh, there, you know, it was kind of crazy. Like we get the the RV comes into Toronto, and there's a, a fresh bullet hole <laughs> in the in the floor. <laughs> I heard the. The story was that the guy wanted to take Christian's laptop or something, or his computer, or his... He was... It, I mean, my understanding is that he was just completely cracked out, yeah. out of his mind, and just wanted money, yeah. and um, got in and, and tried to, you know, tried to, to jack Jill for you know, anything she had. Christian surprised him. Uh, the guy went to fire at Christian, and Christian managed to sort of tackle him at the same time and the gun went off between the guy's legs and went right through the floorboards and the, the RV and the door to the RV was open at the time. And apparently, you know, a bunch of guys were walking by 
and uh, Craig is like, "Oh, you gotta help me, man! You gotta help me! These guys are these guys are crazy!" And these guys stick their head in and are like, "Yeah, I don't think so, man." <laughs> and th- so they went and called the cops. Yeah, and uh, and and uh, that, yeah, that was that. Yeah, and you were, you were also didn't the studio we're in got there was somebody got into the uh, Pete Hudson studio? Was there? There's another story of you guys getting robbed. Yeah, yeah we got. Uh, taken hostage for about 20 minutes 25 minutes yeah didn't they like duct tape you to a chair Uh, or something and yeah yeah it was a whole awful experience um the not not the kind of thing i like thinking about but oh yeah um you know it was it was you know it was a bunch of guys and it seemed like a couple of young kids um you know, with balaclavas and guns, and you could kind of see how young they were by their eyes, and they were sweating. And that was the thing that was really scary about it was, you know, wasn't the the there was there was a lot of them. There was a lot of guys that came in, and the ones that were holding the guns on us were like these young kids, and you could see them sweating, and that they were nervous. And and that was what was really scary was the fact that it they were nervous. And I kept thinking, like, you know, that's what's going to be, that's what's going to kill me here is this kid's nerves are going to get the best of them. And there was a bit, you know, where they like lined us all up against the wall face first and duct taped our hands and all this shit. And then this kid sat there for a while with a gun pointed at my head while I was sitting on a chair and I could see him sweating and I kept getting angry. I was getting like really angry thinking like, I'm never going to see my son again so that you can steal a bunch of fucking eight app players and, yeah. and stuff. And I was getting really angry and I thought like any second, he's going to see how angry I am because I'm sure it's written all over my face. And I turned and I could see his face and he was really shaken. He was nervous and scared. And I thought like, I have to calm down to try and keep him calm. And then all of a sudden this one guy came in and he grabbed me and he went, tattoo boy, you're coming with me. And he grabbed me and dragged me into another room and left everybody else in the front room. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is where I get killed. And he wanted the, the Allen key or something to get the ADAP players. Like that's how ridiculous this was. Need help. And, and uh, I'm like, I don't know where this is. So he tried to break my arm and then tried smacking me in the back of the head with the gun a bunch of times. And I thought, okay, I'm dead now. And uh, somehow, some way, he just, he, I guess I didn't drop. My arm didn't break. I didn't collapse or whatever. So he just gave up and dragged me back into the, the other room. Um, but the whole ordeal was, you know, it was a good half hour at least. And yeah. then what was shitty about it was leaving. There was a big fucking blizzard outside and it was about three in the morning and I had no money, no nothing Ugh. and no house keys, you know, anything and trying to figure out what to do, you know, three o'clock in the morning with a fucking blizzard going on and you're in the entertainment district as yeah. well. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> And I heard they found a mic in the in the back alley because it's a property of CBC or something. I think Pete told me that story, or maybe you told me the story that uh, that 
there was a mic that they found in an alley. It was like U U forty seven or U eighty seven, just sort of in the alley because they're like, oh, that's got a tag on it or whatever. So they just dropped it. And ran. I I'd never heard anything. I mean, yeah. honestly, I never heard a lick of follow up hmm. about any of it. It was kind of it happened. Um, and I never heard anything about it afterwards. That's insane. I mean, how do you how do you come out of that? I mean, like for rock and roll, you know what I mean? Like that's a it's a it's a harrowing story. That's like um that's worse than being in a van crash or it know. was it, it was you know because it's torture. Uh, it was it was a really shitty thing to go through. It's you know it the people who were there were all very nice. Like the you know the Ian and, and Nick and Caitlin who were there as well. Um, everybody stayed calm. Everybody stayed cool. It was what it was. Um, the, you know, I was more worried about somebody coming and breaking into our apartment immediately after because they had my keys, they had my knapsack with my address, they had everything. Right. Um, I was terrified about that. Um, you know, uh, that that was awful. But then a day later, two days later, after that had happened, I got a call and it was, "Hey, you just been added to Ozfest." Oh. And that was going to be the first tour on the new record, which was going to, and this is, this would be six weeks later or seven weeks mm -hmm. later or not a couple of months later, I guess. Yeah. But I'm like, but it, it was just this, that, and that was when I broke down. Like that was when I kind of went like, what the fuck is going on with my life? Mm -hmm. Like that, this roller coaster of emotions and, and, and everything. It was, it, it was a lot, you know? I, it's I don't know. It's I never think about it. Never. Yeah. Well, sorry for bringing it up. <laughs> no, it's, it's all right. <laughs> it happened. It, you know, it's one of those things that happened, and yeah. it's just a, a terrible rock and roll story, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you must have had a few uh, Marilyn Manson issue, uh, fun, uh, crazy, whatever. That guy just chaos just follows him around, um, and you kind of have to sort of share a backstage with that person. That's. He was always really nice to you, though, right? Yeah, it was it. They that collection of guys, um, him and that original Spooky Kids band, mm -hmm. um, as well as you know the the crew that they had. Out of all the tours that I've ever done, they they treated us better than anybody else, um, and not only in the sense that they were incredibly nice and just fun to hang out with, but they encouraged us to push things as hard as we could. Um, you know, we were so used to sort of bouncing from tour to tour to tour to tour where we were always, you know, out of opening for somebody. Um, and, you know, we learned very early on and, and, you know, kudos to Jill. I mean, this is, this is really Jill Heath kind of, you know, really put this into us, but it was sort of like a military exercise of like, you know, you know, set up, get on stage, play your show, tear down, pack it up, get the fuck out of the way, and don't let anybody, don't get in anybody's way. Mm -hmm. Do this as fast as you possibly can and be professional about it. And that got us a lot of tours because people found out that, like, we, you know, we could set up, play a show, tear down, and be out of your face, and you'd never even know we were there. I mean, we were so good at that. Yeah. Um, but with, with Manson we went into it thinking like that's the way we've got to be and we would play and i remember we played two shows maybe and their tour manager came up and was like you guys are holding back aren't you 
we're like, well, we just don't, you know, we don't want to fuck with your stage. We know you guys are headliners. We're, we're not, you know, we're just we're going to do our thing and try to steady your hair. He's like, no, 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 do whatever you want to do. You know, whatever it is that you want to do, just go for it. And I'm like, really? And Manson was like, you fucking pussies, go for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was his attitude. And so we were like, all right, game on. So we, you know, that was when we started pulling as many kids as we could on stage with us. You know, we upped the light show, um, got, we dragged the songs out and, and really kind of put a little bit more sort of sonic ebb and flow in, in, into the set, higher highs, lower lows. Um, and really, you know, it really, it was great. It was it, being given the freedom to really kind of push things as hard as we could was, was fantastic. But, and the more that we did it, the harder they played. Yeah. And I think that was kind of, that, that was the, that was part of the reason I think that they were so encouraging to us was that the more that we would do things, the harder they would, would work to try and keep up with us. Yeah. And yeah. and that was really cool, you know. That was, like I said, you know, nobody else that I've ever toured with or played with has has been that way, ever. Yeah, my first uh, tour as a sound man was with Jill Heath. Oh, uh, wonderful! Yeah, which tour? Mal Havoc. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I went across to Vancouver and back. I didn't get paid, but it was awesome. It was fun. <laughs> Jill was great. Jill was very respectful to the and very like. She, she, you know, I mean, as a person that tours, she toured a lot and she knew yeah. exactly how to do it is what you were saying before. It was very regimented and she was very good at what she did. And we were like, I would like first tour, you know what I mean? So like for me to watch how people toured, I used Jill as sort of the benchmark of all the other tours I did later on down the road. Next one's... And that's, that's setting the bar really high. Yeah, for sure. And the next one was SNFU. I toured with SNFU for like four years. And to see how they did it was sort of like, okay, there is, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, and then when you tour, then you tour with bands who are sort of, you've maybe given up a little bit. It's like, you feel like it's weird. It's a weird dichotomy because you're like trying to, trying to be good and professional in the band you're working with is sort of like, meh, you know? You, you, the, the thing with, with voodoo back in the, in the heyday, um, you know, especially when we were touring with Jill and everything, it it really was militant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really, really was. Um, and you know, there were times where it was exhausting, um, and it took a, a lot out of you. But you know, it was it, you, you know you had to sort of do it like you mean it. And it wasn't until much, much later on you know, um, where, you know, I figured out a way of touring that has a little bit more sort of a middle ground, yeah. you know, where you can, you can be a little, little more relaxed, yeah. um, but, but still get shit done yeah. you know, quick, quickly and effectively. Did you guys ever go out to Europe, play in Europe and things like that? Not with Voodoo, no. No, but you've um, done it before though, right? You've done that? Yeah. 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 Totally the yeah. universe. Totally the world. Oh, it, you know, uh, it, North America could learn a lot from Europe, from the UK and from Japan and, and Australia. Um, you know, it's the touring conditions and, and the, the shit that bands get put through in North America is ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's criminal, yeah. you know? 
Yeah. You know, when you, I think when you start touring through territories where, you know, they, they treat musicians, um, you know, with a great deal of, of respect and, and sort of, there's more, more of a general understanding of, you know, look, we know you're going to need laundry. Yeah. You know, we have, we have a washer and a dryer in our venue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we know you need washrooms backstage. You know, we, you know, we, we, you, just these bare necessities, they understand that, you know, artists need these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I did two kind of tours in the UK. I did a van tour and a club tour or van club tour and i did sort of opening my band opening for some 41 like manchester and london not london because it got canceled but it was like glasgow like big places and i do i appreciated the uk after that but being in germany in a van and then going cross or cross to england it felt like i was back in north america again a little bit a little bit but germany france italy denmark anywhere in scandinavia it's sort of like we we get it you know what i mean and it's i think it's an extra thousand years of i've said this before but it's i think it's an extra thousand years of actual like society has been there they they have a little bit better understanding and empathy for the arts there's there's a better artists are just treated with with respect Mm. in 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 those places um it's you know it's not uh i don't know it's it i i I don't want to look you know i love everybody that i work with in north america i love you know and it's you know it's it's fantastic and everything but you know if if you haven't experienced it you know you you can't i don't think you can really understand it you know i mean you, you need you need to you know, you need to sort of go through that to understand like, holy shit, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not worthless. I'm not useless, useless. Like Absolutely. I'm actually, yeah. I'm, go- I'm, I'm about to go and play and I feel valued. Yeah. 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 I was in my thirties. I couldn't get arrested in North America. i send one demo to Sweden. It record comes out. We did six tours in Europe and no tours in Canada. And uh, <laughs> it was awesome. You know, what's wonderful though is, you know, since, 2000 maybe somewhere around there um just the fact that it's it it, it's really become a global market um for for everybody Mm -hmm. you know um it doesn't matter where you're from you know you you can find audiences all over the world now in ways that you never could before and that's that's you know a wonderful thing yeah um you know uh I, I had this little punk rock band. It was this silly thing because it was supposed to be this band where I thought we were going to go play two or three shows just to just to have some fun one summer. Um, this band called Bastard Child Death Cult, and all of it, you know, we put some stuff on the web, and all of a sudden it just like took off. And the next thing you know, we're we're doing South by Southwest, and then before we toured in Canada, we ended up touring the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, the promoters over there were like, "No, no, you got to come. You have to come." And do this and it, it was wasn't anything i was really taking seriously it wasn't you know whatever but it was just the fact that you know people can find you and, and discover you and and you discover as now it's it's so easy to tour you know i mean you you know what it was like yeah. when you, you're literally touring blind you 
you know, you have a pager, no cell phone, you know, pocket full of quarters for whenever you could find, you know, pay yeah. phones anywhere. Stolen phone cards. You know, <laughs> stolen phone cards. Yeah. Your, your tour itineraries are coming through on a fax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, or you're you writing know. it down. You're writing yeah. it down, like, because someone's telling you over the phone what's happening. Yeah. You're, you're touring out of a Pearly's map. Yeah, so we used to buy the fresh map, and then you'd highlight your route, and then you'd open it up, and you'd see where your route yeah. was, and then you'd keep that. Like, I have, like, a couple of those big, big uh, maps for touring, and I think I have two or three yeah. of them in this room back there somewhere. But, like, <laughs> they're there. I mean, it shows exactly where we went, and it shows exactly, you know what I mean? Like, Or, or handwritten well, ledgers, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, to, 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 I'll, you know, be honest with you, the, the, the weirdest thing was I was terrified of of touring um even when you know voodoo had signed with with rca and we had a record that was out in germany you know bmg in germany had put it out um i was you know I, I had built up in my mind like touring in germany would be the most difficult thing in the world we'd never be able to pull it off you know these it's it's i just didn't know you know, just I had no access to information. I didn't know anybody that was touring there. I didn't know anything about it. And so instead of sort of pushing for the opportunity to go over and support the record or do any of those things, I was just like, no, I'll stick to what I know. You know, <laughs> I, I, I know the roads in North America. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to this. Yeah. And it, and it was it was foolish, but it was, you know, I, I, I was sort of, you know, I was I was young and I was really intimidated by something that I didn't know about at the time. Yeah, it, it it is much easier than it was when like Sons of Ishmael toured Europe. You know what I mean? When, <laughs> yeah. when they had to like, you know, every time there's a border crossing, you'd have to like, get new money and throw, your, make sure you didn't have any change in your pocket, and that would happen like daily. You know, like where they'd have yeah. pockets full of weird money that they didn't know what worked and what didn't work. And uh, we, I mean, when we toured in Europe, we'd be driving into a new country, and you'd see where the road widens for a second, and then it gets skinnier again. And then the guy, he's like, "That's where the 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 the, the border crossing was." Like, wow, it's so <laughs> so archaic, you know. So so you know, and you know, it it's it's such a bit of a drag that guys like me can't just go down to Detroit and play a show, or yeah. Chicago, or or even. Cincinnati like there's a huge barrier between Canadians and Americans where that doesn't exist in, in going to Europe where you can have a guitar in your hand and they're gonna like hey what are you doing here like we're here to play music awesome have a good time you know and I you know uh, the the thrill and the 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 luster of of touring the US is completely gone for me at this point mm -hmm. um, you know, it. I, I, you can make way more money, be treated far better, um, and have a much easier time doing it. Going to you know Japan or Australia or Europe, mm -hmm. even South America at this point, mm -hmm. than than having to cough up what is it six grand now yeah. to get your P twos and all that stuff sorted, and yeah. you know, and the, and the the time constraints on on when the tours can be booked and all. I mean, I remember when I got my first you know, work visa for the States, we could come and go as we wanted. So we could literally book a show that morning, drive down and play that night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't even know what the, the restraints are on Canadians now. I just can't be bothered with it. I do remember when it was a work permit for the band where the whole band would be the work permit. And then, so if you're like the Toronto symphony orchestra, that was one permit. And then what stopped 
this sort of trade now is they said individually you now have to get individual permits and they're like a thousand bucks each and you're and it's you think about it going well i'm not even going to touch anything that remotely pays me four grand for and uh, that's yeah. even if you in five if you want to bring a sound guy it's it seems highly crazy because for some reason what are they afraid of what are i mean what are americans really afraid of when it comes to art and culture i mean we had Canadian content to stop Americans from sort of taking over our market. I, you know, you know, I, I understand their position. I, I the it's it's a protectionist um, measure, uh, and it was actually a democratic. Uh, 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 it was the Democrats who pushed for it, uh, where you know they they did not want artists from Canada and sports figures because the the P two visas it's their their entertainment visas and sports and so there's x number that are allowed annually and and those include sports teams musicians artists and um they just they didn't want those people coming taking jobs away from americans and and i get it i i i I totally get that i can understand why that would be important um but when you look at the reality of the situation as to the fact that you know there's lots of opportunity for everybody there, you know, um, you know, stopping five Canadians from coming and touring in your country isn't going to turn your economy around. It's, it's that's, that's not going to do it. Yeah. Uh, if they only time, knew what it costs to tour in a van then and what they're getting paid, it's like, Oh man, we should be paying them to come in. You know I mean? like, well, they, they, they see it. I mean, I, I've spoken with, with, uh, with people involved and in, at the at, at the border and and uh, with policy and they honestly they see it as um, we should feel privileged it's this isn't about them about us making money they don't they do not care if we make money at all or even break even that they, they really do believe we should be paying for the privilege of stepping foot into their country to entertain americans and you know the the people I spoke to were very blunt about that, and you know um, there's I don't know I've I've never met anybody who seems like they've made any headway in trying to reverse these policies or um, have any luck addressing these policies with the Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just is what it is. Yeah. You, you know? look on the other side of the uh, on the other side of it. If you're a band that doesn't make any money that tries to tour in, in the Americas, you're not really making much of an impact anyways. So if you think what the bill is for, doesn't matter if you're, um, you know, Rush or Adam Sewell, it's the same costs to do with the same thing. The, the difference is, is when a, well, not anymore, but when a Rush went into America, they, they actually boosted an economy you know, for that microcosm. So the money they're paying in is just pennies compared to what they're actually making. What it may, maybe it does, it actually raises the caliber of entertainment, especially coming from Canada that go into America. So you can be more picky and choosy just by outpricing. Well, I, you know, I think there's, there's part and parcel of a lot of things. And um, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to say I've given a whole lot of thought to this, but you know, my mentality about things is that one bands should not be in such a hurry to tour anyways. Yeah. You know, I think bands need to spend far more time 
promoting themselves up front of touring. Um, touring should be in support of what you've built up. You know, you, you shouldn't tour to try and build an audience. You should try and build an audience before you tour nowadays mm -hmm. Finan because financially otherwise you're going to just devastate yourself yeah and destroy yourself the only thing it really uh, proves is that the that you're willing to do it and then so maybe someone might invest in you as a, a label or as a management company or something yeah um, I, 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 I find that a little bit debatable okay. because um, and, and only on in in this sense in that there are a lot of labels who really all that they're looking for are bands who are willing to get in a van and go play 200 shows a year. And that's the criteria. You know, they're going to go out and they're going to do this. But what we're seeing is, you know, if bands and artists spend more time up front building something and creating demand for something up front, and then slowly rolling things out in a meaningful way, you can achieve a lot more in a much, much shorter time. And you're not going to break the bank. You're not going to break the spirits of everybody, you know, in the, in the, in the van and in the band. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can, you can be a little smarter about how you do things. You know, my, my personal feeling is that like, you know, if you if you're building something of value, you know, and something you're really proud of, and something you're working towards, the goal should be that you know you should want people chasing after you to come and perform at their venue or or perform on their shows, and they should be paying you something substantive, something you know where you feel like this this it, it's a meaningful payment um you know look that could be 200 bucks in some situations but it's got to mean that you know they honestly believe that you are worth that 200 dollars that they're paying you mm -hmm. you know they're not just saying like show up we'll give you a cheese sandwich and 20 bucks for the gas tank <laughs> yeah. um you know i, I think it I just I've, I I personally believe that that's what artists need to work towards is is being that way. I I get the you're young, you know, you're 20 years old, you want to hop in the van and live off of pizza and beer and just go play shows, and that's cool, mm -hmm. you know. Like I get it. That's that's totally cool. I've been there, done that, know what it's all about. Um, but you know, I think if if you're trying to not lose your shirt you know, and, and trying to build something larger, you know, people have, promoters have to feel like, oh, okay, this is something real. Like this is, okay, this is not just a band who happens to be passing through town or, or whatever, you know, and they, you know, especially in North America, North Americans need to understand that like, no, this is, this is something special. And, and I think bands need to learn to, you know, underplay more often. Um, and they need to learn to play events, you know, and they need to, to realize that, you know, audiences need to be given something special to be entertained, yeah. you know, and they, they need to work towards that. The worst horrible touring I ever did was the radio station promo, promo tour. And it's so horribly dirty. You feel dirty doing it because you're not... You're not paying any money, but you're playing a show to contest winners who um, 
listen to the radio station, you get some medium, whatever, you get some small rotation, but you come and play every single little shitty club everywhere all the time, and they don't care because they think that you're doing it to get yourself more on the radio. So that's this crazy, silly angle. And you sit there and you like do the show and it's like, there's like 40 kids there and they're like, oh, I, I won this for free. Like, you know what I mean? It doesn't do anything. Yeah. It only says like dance monkey. That's what you get. That's what that sounds like. You know, but you know, what's interesting, Simon, is I think you and I, um, you know, we've, we, we tour through a really interesting period of time where, you know, it's kind of, it was it's been a lot of trial and error to see what works and what doesn't work and and um you know look i you know i've done those shows i've done the hey we got an opportunity to go play denver tomorrow by the way you know you're going to be playing at seven o'clock between the bikini contest and the uh (laughs) the 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 boot scooting Mm -hmm. um but it's it's a chance to play and it's 50 bucks or 100 bucks for the gas tank you know, and you go, oh, okay, I'll do it. And those are the ones where you feel really fucking gross afterwards. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's 2019. And I think that there's, there's ways that, that, you know, if people are smart enough to look backwards and say, like, we've seen this, this, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. Oh, that looks like that idea kind of worked. Um, you know, like, you know, I, I have always hated I've, I've always, I always thought it was the grossest thing ever, but like, you know, get, you know, 500,000 of your MySpace friends to vote for you so you can go play the Ernie Ball, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, no, but like the, the Ernie Ball parking lot stage yeah. at the, you know, Monster Energy drink, you know, mega car fest, <laughs> you know, thing, yeah. whatever the fuck it is you know that's it it just it's it it just sucks the life out of everything i got a funny story about this cross promotion thing there's there's a well i got one i got two but i'll tell you one my favorite one was um mountain dew had just put out like this crazy cherry flavored mountain dew drink and it tasted like garbage. It tasted horrible. <laughs> so we're tasting it, and it's I'm on tour with I'm on tour with Treble Charger, and we're playing in uh, Calgary at like a it's like a big air competition out in the summer for snowboards. Right. And uh, we're doing this show, and then people are getting free Mountain Dew drinks, and they're like drinking it, going, "This is fucking garbage." So then they threw it at the band. So one guy <sighs> did it, and then it turned into all this red mountain dew shit getting thrown at treble charger <laughs> and i'm like in front of greg like because he's singing and he couldn't he couldn't like he couldn't deke out of the way right so i'm like patting down mountain dew drinks as it's flying in from nowhere because people think it's funny now but they just oh, kept I'm playing sorry. they kept going they kept doing it they kept doing their thing and uh you know i i gained some respect for a band like that that was like because they would have to do shit like that too it's like Man, are you kidding me? Like you, you know what I mean. You had a song on the radio. You have a platinum record. Why, why are we doing this? You know, and it was. Well, it, it, tr- trust me. I'm sure the payday was okay. I hope it was. I hope it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, but that's. But it. You know. Again, I think it depends on um, how you want people to perceive your band. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, that's that's. I think you can do things now that you could never do before. 
Um, I mean, if you had ever told me that I would be going to the Air Canada Center to see Nick Cave, yeah. do, you, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Um, that that to me is is mind blowing. I mean, if if you if you work with the right people and you position yourself the right way, you you can now speak to all of the the people that you need to speak to to convey the image of your band or your your art or whatever it is in in a way in which you can it's almost a manifest destiny type situation i mean i get at the, the time and and everything for trouble for a band like trouble charger to do something like that i get it i totally get it and i get why there will be a million bands yet to come who will also jump at the chance to do those types of things mm-hmm. um you know and that's that's fine and fair but um you know my headspace and and where i like to you know look for for art and everything i think is somewhere else that's for sure no that makes total sense and 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 having you, you what you said was powerful is actually don't underestimate yourself is what i'm sort of taking from that you have to have a feeling of um worth and a feeling of like this is a real thing that i'm um, presenting to people and not on your own terms too. I mean, like you've been doing it a yeah. long enough time where you can say, I can do things on my own terms and me too, but I doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be popular or successful. It just means now it's on my own terms. It's not, I'm not a slave to it anymore. You know, the, the, the thing is, um, you know, look, I've been working, you know, with record labels and, and in artist management now for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, I will tell you, you know, I've worked with hundreds of artists, hundreds at this point. And it doesn't matter if you are Kiss or Morrissey, the Almond Brothers, if you're the Strokes, if you're the Libertines, uh, or if you're the Creep Show, or if you're, um, you know, who am I, uh, Syrah or, or Motorhead, you know, if if you as as an artist are a freight train this is an analogy i use with artists i work with all the time if you are a freight train doing exactly what you want to do running as hard as you possibly can and including everybody around you and what you're doing everybody on the perimeter will look at you and go i'm going to hitch my wagon to that ride i'm i'm getting on board I want to be a part of that. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be a commercial pop band. You could be a reggae band. You could be, you know, uh, a rockabilly band. You could be anything. You just have to be a freight train. And and it's that manifest destiny of we're making this happen. Um, and, you know, but you have to be aware that that's what you're doing. You know, the the great thing about, you know, the music industry in 2019 is it's the wild west you know it really is it's it's it i i see it as as being great in that the rules are, are gone primarily um there isn't one way of doing anything there are there's you you can make this up as you go along and every artist is their own micro industry onto themselves you know there isn't a music industry there are a million industries you know, and each band, you know, can do things in, in their own unique way. And as long as they are nurturing and growing an audience while they do it, they can be successful. You know, you can be Leon Bridges and come from 
you know, zero, you can do zero to a hundred, you know, literally overnight, you know, and he was his own little mic in his own little bubble doing his mm -hmm. own little thing. Um, you, 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 you don't need to go out on tour and kill yourself for two or three years and hope that you get a record deal and then hope that somebody else comes. And you, you're going to destroy yourself. You know, I mean, the, the greatest thing about now today is that if bands, you know, they can focus on their art, they can make their art better. They can make their experience, the experience of their art, whether it's a, a live performances or videos or whatever it is, they can make all these things better before they ever have to go out and, and wear themselves out on the grind. Yeah. You know, um, I just, you know, I'm a, I'm just a big believer as well that like bands need to know if, if you're, if you get in a van and you go play 200 shows this year, the five or six of you are going to get out of that van at the end of those 200 shows and not want to talk to each other again. Mm. You're, you're going to be angry. Yeah. You're, you're going to be a little bit bitter. Um, if you, if you don't see the results that you're, you're anticipating, Oh yeah. uh, you know, and that's a horrible thing to do to a band. You know? Yeah. I mean, the way you present that is it makes total sense now that <clears throat> when you say this, perhaps you're a relatively good songwriter, and then you go on tour and have no success, it doesn't turn you really into a better songwriter. It turns you into a Packer at McDonald's or a McDonald's drive-thru order clerk or something. It doesn't yeah. foster your art. And when that whole, you know, that whole theory of like, well, you can't write blues in an air-conditioned room, I, to an, to an extent, yes, but at what is the percentage of success on Muddy Waters-type success? Or, you know what I mean, right. where his name you know, it completely, it's his, it's his brand is his name. It's more like any band, like the Rolling Stones or something. You know what I mean? Like that's such a diamond in the rough to what, you know, there's, there's probably a thousand copycat bands that came up trying to be the Rolling Stones, trying to be Muddy Waters. And they just didn't, didn't foster anything yeah. because it gave the, up. Right. The, the most important thing for any artist is life experience. Mm -hmm. And, and you have to, you have to have, you either have to have experienced something or you have to be able to channel experiences of people around you in, into art. And for some people, look, you know, maybe you do need to go and do those 200 shows and live out of a van and go and, and meet, you know, all these crazy people all over the world before you start to understand. But I would, I would bet you know all my life savings on it that that's the beginning of your songwriting mm -hmm. is after that 200 shows you know with the songs you wrote before that they aren't the songs mm -hmm. you you won't have the songs until after you've done those things or you know your life experience comes from you know the life that you experienced up to the point where you started writing and and, and not necessarily touring things you you have to you know you have to have, you have to be drawing from somewhere real in order to, to write and and to um, put something unique over and something that's 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 genuine. Uh, it's it's got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Some people don't think it does. Some people think that they just pull it out of their ass and it's just whatever. But I'll tell you, it comes from somewhere. That subconsciously, it's coming from somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's. It, it, and 
you know, I just, I just think it's terrible, this notion that, you know, artists have to be broken, you know, they, they have to, you know, they have to go out and kill themselves just to prove that there's any you know, validity to what they're doing. Mm. It's, it's just terrible. You know, it's not, it's not right to treat people like that. I mean, it, you know, and if you, you think I'm wrong, you know, look at what The Clash did. Yeah. They didn't really tour. The tours were these short tours where you would see, you know, there's a run of six weeks here, three months off, four months off, another six weeks, three months off, four months off, another six mm-hmm. weeks. They didn't tour 365. You know, it wasn't pumping out an album, tour, you know, a year or two. You know, it was, they're in the studio for four months out of the year, and then these short little runs and tours. And they were, you know, to me, they were the greatest rock and roll band in history. Yeah. You know? And every show they did was a happening. I mean, you think if Led Zeppelin came to town in 1973 or four, everybody would be like, oh my God, Led Zeppelin's coming to town, you know? And, the, yeah. and, and now I don't think there's that type of, you know, um, even like Ariana Grande's coming to the uh, Scotiabank Theater. Like, yeah, okay, great, awesome. What am I going to get? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Or Taylor Swift or, you know, the big, big rock stadium or the big stadium things. Yeah. And, and you go, you know damn well you can watch that show on Netflix and get a better experience at this point than, say, being one of the 50,000 people at a Taylor Swift concert. Well, they, you know, I, I, there's a, another, there's another side to it, too, which is that I think people tend to romanticize uh, you know, too much from the past. Um, you know, they need, you know, they need to remember that, you know, Led Zeppelin, the Yardbirds, the Beatles, the Grateful Dead, these were dance bands. Hmm. You know, these were bands that were playing what were essentially rock and roll dance clubs. Hmm. You know, they, they, that was, they were the entertainment. People would go out dancing and see, and see these bands, um, you know, at the, at the clubs that they played. Um, you know, Zeppelin were probably a, a, more of a transitional band where they're coming out of, of that period and, and more into the, the rock and roll experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Animals, Yardbirds, um, you know, all the, the, the Motown acts that were touring, um, Stax acts that were touring, they were dance bands. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that. And so, but we need to realize, like in 2019, that's not necessarily a relevant cultural thing you know, for us. And now instead of, you know, a live rock band playing in a dance hall for people, you now have these mega fucking DJ (laughs) nights, you know, 5,000 people paying, you know, a hundred dollars a piece to go and watch a guy push buttons on a stage while they wig out on whatever drugs they're on. Even the key to ballad does more of that EDM than rock and roll. The key to ballad, you know, a staple (laughs) point in cottage rock. There's more dance music going on in out of that place now. It's, I think artists just need to be aware of, you know, what, whatever they're doing, you know, does it, does it work in the time, in their time? You know, is being a band like this going to work in 2019? Mm. Um, You know, and, and sometimes, you know, and, and I think if you look at, you know, to, to take Led Zeppelin, there's there a really great saying. Do you know who John Kolodner is? Mm-mm. 
John Kladner's a really famous A&R guy who signed Cher and he signed Aerosmith. Okay. And you know the Aerosmith dude looks like a lady video? Yeah, where yeah, there's yeah. a guy in the wedding dress. Okay, yeah. With the beard? That's John Kladner. Oh, um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he said, you know, back in the, the mid-90s, um, he said, you know, it, it doesn't matter what's going on. There will always be a Led Zeppelin in the charts. One. There will be one Led Zeppelin in the charts. And so, you know, you go from a Led Zeppelin to a Salty Dog to a Soundgarden to now a Greta Van Fleet. Mm-hmm. And, but it's one. One band can get away with doing that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's it. Yeah. You know. Sheep um, dogs. Yeah. But that's, you know, it's a Crosby, Stills, Nash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the one. Of, that's one of those. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, they're, they're the one, right? You yeah, can get away true. with it. Um, yeah. But, you know, you need to, I think artists also need to figure out, like, are we that one? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a difficult question to, to ask yourself, I suppose. Yeah, it's, well, there's, I, there's a band, I don't know what they're called, but I was listening to on Sirius, and it's like, this band took the recording concept of Zeppelin One and made it into a record, and I forgot. I wish I knew. It. I wish I could remember what they were called. But I was so taken back, going, "These, this band is Led Zeppelin. Like this is exactly, and 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 almost like I almost was sold on it. I'm like I can be into this. You know, I'm kind of into right. this because it's the nostalgia you're speaking of. It's like there's something there that they've channeled. You remember that band Jellyfish? Yeah, they yeah. totally channeled Beach Boys and Queen and put a record out that's like my one of my favorite records of all time, and because they they tapped into something, it wasn't just the fact they were writing great songs; it was something about it that it just felt good, and that sort of comes about the whole concept of realness. Like there needs to be a realness to all of this because yeah. you can't fabricate realness. You can try; a lot of people have tried, but they haven't really it's the realness that gets people on board with your band or your, or your product or what you're trying to put out. Because if you're trying to fake it, they sniff that out like radar. You know what I mean? It's like, I, you, you know, um, the, the thing is like with the, the record that I've just made, it, 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 it's the, it's the first record I made with complete abandon hmm. where the songs were, what flowed out and in every direction out of me it's they are they are a, a completely perfect picture of what what is real in inside of me mm-hmm. you know and and musically that it's as, as as good as i can possibly you know make them it's not attempting to sound like anybody else or attempting to do anything else mm-hmm. like that i just find that there's way too many bands where you know they all have the same drum triggers and same sounds and, and you know same guitars and the same, everything's the same and you know there's no you know there's no personality to anything um you know it's 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 something that i, I set me at odds with a lot of people growing up, which was, you know, when I was young and you looked and you saw there's one bad brains, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? There's one black flag. There's one discharge. Um, you, you know, so if those bands already exist and are already like that, why would you want to sound like that? 
Why would you try and ape what they're already doing? If what you're seeing is, you know, the best bands in history are all unique and stand on their own. Why would you try and ape what they're doing? Why wouldn't you put the extra effort into creating something that is uniquely your own? Yeah, it's terribly difficult to do that. You know what I mean? Obviously. But to me, that was that was always the thing that I put before anything else. Yeah. Like that was more important to me than was establishing a singular identity that was different from everybody else before even trying to write the songs. It was understanding like, okay, um, you know, like what we were talking about where Voodoo came from. Well, the, the band that Voodoo came out of, Totentans, you know, this is at the height of thrash, you know, and crossover and everything. So everybody's playing a million miles an hour. Um, you know, everything's as fast as it can possibly be. So I just went like, well, fuck it. What if we just slowed everything down a hundred percent, you know, just crawl just, you know, and instead of this sort of like, you know, let's, let's put the groove back in, like, let's bring the black, you know, let's, what happens if you force feed, you know, black Sabbath into black flag, Mm-hmm. You know, and that was kind of a starting point for for where we were at. And so I remember, you know, we would go out and play with DRI or Agnostic Front or something, and we'd come out and, you know, we'd open with a cover of Venom's Buried Alive. <laughs> and, you know, we're just like rocking real slow on people. And I can remember like people just yelling, thrash, play faster, play faster. But at the end of it, it was the first time I was ever in a band where when I walked away, people were like, holy fuck nobody else is doing that like oh okay that's oh you guys you're the band that's doing that and that to me was like i don't know man that that felt so felt so important you know that felt so good you know i'd rather people like i you know it didn't bother me that you know 80 percent of the people hated what we were doing because we weren't you know, hmm. we weren't agnostic front light or, you know, DRI light or whatever. Sure. I just, I, I just dug it that people could go like, no, they're doing their own thing. Yeah. That, that was really important. Yeah. And the scene of the late eighties or early nineties, and even, I don't know the mid eighties cause I, I'm a little younger than you, <laughs> but I know, <laughs> I noticed that there was a sense of acceptance, no matter what scene you went into, if you did something that was sort of like, it felt good then it was like, oh, if it feels good, then we'll we'll let you in. Like my Ben Red Fisher would play with uh, with a, a Latino anarchist like thrash band in Chicago, and we'd play like right. weird fucking basement like anarchist bookshops and stuff. And they sounded nothing like us. They had a song called like Assassino Assassino. It's like ah, and then we'd come and play our, you know what I mean, our our power pop, yeah. you know what I mean, a la MSI kind of thing, and. And they'd love us because we were real, you know what I mean? And they were real. And it was like we had an, we had an, uh, I, I don't think that really exists anymore um, because of the tribes and how everybody is sort of like putting in themselves into their own niche, into the, the niches of each other. Therefore, there's no like real way of breaking free and meeting other people who do music that's different than you. I know me, I think there was a good time back then for that to happen. You know, there was, I've, I've always felt there was, this sort of thing like right up to 1995 and it feels like 95 was kind of the cutoff, but it felt like from, you know, the early eighties through to 1995, you could do anything Yeah, like you, if you, if you just wanted to go for it, go for it, just try anything, do anything. Yeah. And, 
and you and somebody would dig it you know i'm yeah. sure you, you could find somebody that would be cool with it and um and then all of a sudden it was like there was this big clamp down yeah. it felt like and it was like no this is you know um there was the thing that you know it was the reason why i quit doing voodoo you know after after, after 95 um which was you know we were being told like you know no this is this is what industrial music sounds like now it's it's it is this or this is what metal is now or this is what punk rock is now or this is what and i would look at it and go like i hate all these fucking bands mm -hmm. like no i you know like and they're like well you know look if you you know wanted to get this tour you know you know or you want to do this or like this you've got to be more like this and my favorite bands all kind of disappeared yeah um and that sort of sense of freedom and being able to experiment kind of just dried up and went away. Yeah. You know, it actually reappeared in electronic music, which oh, yeah. to me was, was far more exciting. Yeah. Yeah. There was like an eight bit revival thing going on too, that some people were telling me about that. It was like, uh, this is distorted synthesizers and you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's where, yeah. It's interesting you say that. Cause like, obviously everybody knows that 93 and 92 and 93 is when, the industry got completely turned on its ear where everybody got stuck caught with their pants down and it was like Nirvana and then Green Day sort of a double bam bam and people were like what the hell what's going on here and then after 95 is what you're saying is where people start going how are we going to make some fucking more money out of this and that's yeah. where they like hey let's make a Green Day light let's make a Nirvana light let's make an Offspring light or whatever 2.0 and the industry became in got so bad towards like the early 2000s it just it ate itself and people were ready the, the the last meeting that i had with with rca um and it wasn't a hostile meeting it wasn't it wasn't a bad meeting it was quite nice everybody was you know it was it was very friendly but um we we had finished touring the suffer system record and um rca came to us and said look we want you to go make a follow-up we need another record really quickly um but we want to really kind of you know we want to make sure that there's something for the radio kind of thing on on the record and and i'll be honest with you i didn't i really don't have a problem with that you know it was the one thing that i felt was always missing from from that record was like that one song yeah. that one big rock club song or something like we just we didn't have it on that record and we should have um and so i was i was cool with that with in concept i was fine with the idea um you know to work a little harder to to come up with you know that sort of rock club type thing but um you know i gave them a list of people that i wanted to produce the record and it was a pretty short list and it was you know nelly hooper mm. um it was liam howlett from the prodigy and it was the chemical brothers who had just been the dust brothers mm. so this was august of 95 and so this was before you know, Prodigy and Chemical Brothers have exploded and taken off and everything. And I gave the list to um, to RCA. BMG, our publishers, had already contacted the Chemical Brothers, and they had had there was a tentative agreement in place. Where they said, "Yeah, you know, for X number of dollars or X number of pounds, we'll we'll do work on per track with with them." And I was feeling good. About it. I was like, "Oh, this is this is kind of exciting." Go into the meeting with RCA, and they're like, "We don't know who these people are. Yeah. We we have no idea who these people are on this list. Um, you know, our last offer to you is like, could you make a record with Butch Vig? Yeah. 
And I was like, no, <laughs> no. And this this was kind of before garbage, right? Yeah. This was, yeah. This was I think this was before garbage. Um, so in my mind, Butch Vig was, you know, smashing pumpkins, I guess, and Nirvana, Nirvana. Yeah. had nothing to do with anything that we were doing. Yeah. And I was saying, no, no, this isn't going to fucking work. Um, you know, it, it bums me out to this day. Cause could you imagine like, had we made that record with the chemical brothers in 1995? You'd be way yeah. ahead of it. You'd be ahead of the cusp and, and you, you know, yeah, who knows? I mean, it's a yeah. coulda, shoulda, woulda, but you know, you make decisions. We all make decisions musically and and creatively that um, they're very helpful or they're not very helpful. And you know, and the problem. Yeah. I mean, you had a manager still, right? So you had someone that not could- at, not at that time. No, because no. that's no, a tricky was- thing. That's a tricky way to navigate yeah. through the business. Is that you're the artist and the management. It gets very difficult to try to separate what hat you're wearing. And I, I, I lived through in the early 2000s with my band trying to deal with like Japanese record labels and Swedish record labels. And, and I'm still got to go write records and make music and, and, and then at the same time fight for what's right as a musician for the musicians that other people, right. know, you know what I mean? It's, you, then you become difficult. You know, I did anyways. became difficult to work with. The, the, the hardest thing for me personally was... I had never known anybody growing up who was going through, who had gone through anything like what I was going through. Like no, there was no one that I could speak to. And there was always a sense of, you know, you you better know the answer and you better know it quickly. Like hurry, hurry up and give us an answer, you know? And that was for, that was, but that was everything like with the band for touring and, and, and all of it. And, I'll I'll be honest with you. I think, you know, from 1990 to the end of 1995, you know, that five years went by in the blink of an eye and it chewed me up and spat me out the other side. Mm -hmm. And I was too young, man. I was too young. I didn't know enough. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what the questions were to ask. I didn't, you know, I didn't have anybody I could lean on. Um, And, it was, you know, it was just a, a terrible, it was, it was rough, man. And it was also, you know, uh, when it does stop, when that ride does stop, it's, it doesn't stop gradually. It's like you're going a million miles an hour and then you just hit the wall yeah. and then there's nothing. And then you're just left on your own. And, um, you know, I, I, when I work with artists now, you know, Part of my job and part of my responsibility, I feel, is to make sure that they never have to experience anything like that. Yeah, that they never they never go through anything like that. Good mentorship it goes a long way and shows that there's development in, involved. You know, like let's work on this. And as a manager, I I hear you on that because that's a dying uh, to me that feels like a dying part of the industry is development. It's like, what do you got? Okay, what you, what can you do? Okay, great. How many followers do you have on Twitter? Awesome. Let's make a record. It's like, well, have you heard any songs yet? And usually, most of the times, it's like, well, they heard half a song or something, right? Like, yeah, this is you know, I I, I feel like artists are smarter now, though. Mm. Um, I and I feel like like when I listen to my son and his friends talk about you know the music business or whatever, mm-hmm. they're light years ahead of of where I think we were when we were young. That's awesome. You know, and, and, and again, it's, it's, I think, I think there's a much better free flow of information that's out there. Yeah. Well, it's, 
Yeah, it's good to be optimistic too about it because it is. It's still just. It's really just. It's the fact is that it's art, and art needs to be appreciated. And the the uh, the, the strange part of it is that art has a monetary value to it. And what needs to happen is the bridging the gap between the monetary value versus the work you put into it or the love you put into it. You know, there's that, that sort of always a balancing game of, is this going to make money or am I going to pay my rent or do I need to, you know what I mean? Like it's a... Well, there's, there is a much better sense now that, um, you know, like, you know, one of the things, my son started putting on uh, art gallery shows when he was about 17 and he would rent out a, an art gallery space and he would get a liquor license and he would get sponsorships from from Red Bull um, and he would have bands play and, and artists perform uh, live painting. He would do these full things and he would make more money mm-hmm. in one night than, you know, I can remember making in the first six months, yeah. you know, out on tour playing. And he would say to me, be like, why would I need, you know, to work with a record label? Or why would I need to work with anything when I can just do this? Like, why, you know, and, and the artists would say, like, we made more money doing this, you know, tonight than we would if we went and played, you know, any of these clubs or anything. So why would we bother? And our friends came out and had a better time than they would if they went to a rock club, mm. you know, and the kids today get it. Like they're far more tuned into what their own value is, what their opportunities are, what their options are. Um, they just, they, they really, they have a, they have a, a much better sense of self of, of the larger picture. And they're not, they're not grasping at straws. You know, this notion of, of, Oh, venues are closing. Bands are panicking. Where where are the kids going to play? Trust me, the kids don't give a fuck. Yeah, they really don't. Not not in the way that I think we want to believe that they do. Um, you know, I, if you can go out to Streetsville and and play the community center out there and pull in four or five hundred kids off the street on a Saturday night, mm-hmm. and you're charging ten bucks a head for them to get in. I mean, come on, man. Yeah. What, what are you worried about what's going on in downtown Toronto for? <laughs> I could talk to you all night, man. I, I knew, I, yeah, I, uh, I really got to appreciate you coming on the show, Adam, because uh, it's been a long time. You're very, you're very, um, you're in tune with what's happening and what's going on. And it's good to see that you can have a, re- a f- reflective view of what's happened in the past and then have a different view that I don't think anybody who's been on the show has had that view looking forward. So uh, for that, I thank you. Well, thank you, Simon. I I really appreciate it. It was wonderful to speak with you again. And that was Mr. Adam Sewell, right? Good episode. Awesome episode. One of my favorite ones, I'd say. Some some of the coolest things were said in the period of 90 minutes, I think, in the history of this podcast. So uh, thank you, Adam, for doing the show. I really appreciate it. Um, it's a, yeah, you gotta listen to a few times because I did and it's just, there's so many neat things and insights into the Canadian music industry industry, and just the industry in general. Thanks everybody. Uh, thanks for supporting the show on uh, 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 Amazon. You too can support the show by going to appalot.ca slash Amazon or appalot.ca slash US Amazon. Thanks to the patrons I have. You too can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash 
Um, yeah. Awesome. Great. Okay, so it's getting to the middle of the end of the winter, and people I feel that I'm working with are getting very, very, very tense and tight, and, 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 and it's like they can sense that the impending more winter. All I can say is hang tight, my friends. It's almost over. Uh, to all my friends I work with, dance season has just begun and it hasn't finished yet. Let's get through this. To all the people that are dealing with any sort of seasonal depression, go get therapied up. I'm not going to drop the name of the place, but go anywhere. Get get looked at and go go, go get help because it's not as bad as you think. And, and to put it all into perspective, it's uh, yeah, it's been a tough year, but let's or been a tough winter, but let's. Uh, all buy them together and get this done so everybody have a great week i will see you again have a good one bye